Welcome to the Net Positive Podcast, a series of podcasts on clean energy and the environment. The Net Positive is about crafting healthy communities and a sustainable world. These explorations are designed to educate and inspire. That's when we get action. Greetings. I am your host, Ted Flanagan, and this episode of the Net Positive Podcast features a conversation with Peter Asmuth. He's currently the research director at Guidehouse Insights. That's the firm that took over Navigant Research, where he was for a dozen years. Peter joins me for a conversation about microgrids, the state of microgrids. Peter, welcome to the Net Positive Podcast. Uh, thrilled to be here chatting with you uh, this afternoon and and getting some of your insights. So good afternoon, how are you? I'm pretty good, you know. Um, it's summer, uh, out here I live out on the coast. Uh, the sun is trying to peek through, but I appreciate fog now more than ever, <laughs> ever since the wildfire threat. It's funny how my perceptions of fog, I mean, I've never hated fog, but it's just like when it's several days in a row, it gets a little gloomy, but uh, today I'm feeling good. Good, good, good. Let's go. Let's go all the way back just for a few minutes because I, I looked up. I looked a little bit about you, and mm-hmm. I saw University of Wisconsin. And then I saw, and I know I'm not getting the pronunciation right, but is it Mequon or Mequon High School? Yeah, yes, you are going back. Yes, Mequon, which is a Mequon. suburb north of Milwaukee, yeah. um, Homestead High School. It's kind of a Embarrassing name, but yes, those are the days when I played football, and my nickname was Freight Train. So <laughs> because I used to run over people, so <laughs> I was a, I was a little meaner back then, or maybe let's just say angry. I was an angry young man. Really, really. Now, uh, you know, while we're while we're in that that geography, uh, are you do you follow basketball at all? Oh yes. So I watched. Actually, I just watched the last playoff game. So. Um, one more to go, yeah, and the, Milwaukee hasn't won a championship. I guess it said since 71 or some really long time ago. I yeah, think yeah, that's when they had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar probably and all those, uh, you know, yeah. great players from way back when. Yeah, and then I, I, I get I get that sports was a big deal uh, in high school, and then football, more music and activism. Am I reading that correctly, or – yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I didn't really play, you know, football was the main thing. I did play a little basketball and actually I played soccer, uh, but not through high school um, in that area. Milwaukee, as you know, is you know a lot of Europeans. So I actually played on a soccer team called the Milwaukee Brewers, just like the baseball team. And, um, you know, but then, yes, eventually I moved to California kind of without a plan. I just kind of was like, go West, young man. And at the time I was a journalist and I actually started out as an arts editor. Um, and I was an arts editor in college at the University of Wisconsin, but then started doing some more political writing, got into investigative reporting. When I moved to Sacramento, um, did a lot of stories for the local paper about money and politics, corruption and government. And then sort of segue to environmental issues and then eventually energy issues. I, I think I first met you, you were at Navigant. Now, that's not too ancient history, but you were the director of research or you had a research role there for 
Well, so it was actually, first it was Pike Research, which was a startup, and then Navigant purchased Pike, and then Guidehouse purchased Navigant. So it's basically been the same company for over 10 years, and actually most of my life I've been an independent. So now I've actually, I've sort of did things in reverse. Most people work for a company and then might go independent, but I kind of did the reverse. Although who knows what's going to happen in the future? You know, I'm getting up there in age and some point, you know, I have a few more things I want to do and, and may go independent again. But now your now your current job is to do what? My current job, I'm a research director, um, primarily microgrids, but I also look at related sort of, I guess, platforms, you could call them virtual power plants. I sort of started up that research and now I'm handing that off. And then lately there's a a keyword is derms. Someone said it sounds like a skin condition, but it's a <laughs> distributed energy resource management system. So basically ways to get more value out of distributed energy resources is, the, is I guess, the broad brush. But I've, you know, I dabble in other things, a little bit on hydrogen. I did a little bit on ocean energy. My first report actually was on ocean energy for Pike Research, and I see that there's a little bit of a comeback there, but really it's been microgrids. I think I've authored, I don't even know how many reports, let's say could be as many as a hundred reports on microgrids, and uh, I do a lot of white papers lately. That's sort of become my specialty. Before we get to microgrids, which is very impressive that you've written that much, but um, you wrote three or four books along the way. One on wind, that is, one on California yes. energy. Uh, yep. Yeah, no, I've written four kind of major books. The first one, 1990, I was a co-author, which was more of just a broader environmental book. It was called In Search of Environmental Excellence, which at the time, you know, it was about the role of business in solving environmental problems, which wasn't as common of a, a theme back then. Now it's, it's fairly mainstream. Uh, and then um, the book about SMUD, I said I lived in Sacramento, Reinventing Electric Utilities, about what they did when they closed a nuclear power plant. And my, my favorite book is the wind book, Reaping the Wind. And then the last book was um, is basically, it's got the really exciting title of Introduction to Energy in California. But that one had a lot of pictures. The fun part of that was sort of the history of energy in California going back to the oil industry, which a lot of people don't remember that we were a leading oil state. Some ways still are, but back then we were like, also there was a lot of corruption with that. And then hydro development was part I didn't really know about the early hydro development in California, sort of following the gold rush. A lot of the same people who, when the gold ran out, they were trying to figure out how to make money. And a lot of them went into the hydro business. And I guess when you did the, the book on SMUD, uh, S, our friend S. David Freeman must have been front and center of that. Oh, yes. I have some pretty funny stories. Uh, he was quite the character, as you know. I remember the weirdest story is interviewing once where he was playing Nerf basketball during our interview. And uh, he told me a story about once he forgot his cowboy boots at some fancy restaurant. He had taken them off to this guy walked out without him or it was something to that effect. I don't know if I got that exactly right. Colorful character. He's, he brought me out to California. He did I've been living in uh, Snowmass, Colorado, and living and working there. And, and he, he said, you know, come on out to L.A. Be my director of energy efficiency at L.A. DWT. And first I said, no way. And then I thought, well, that's a, that's a pretty good thing to take on. But 
Well, what a what an amazing run doing all this research and, and really digging in on on what has made California tick in terms of our energy policies and kind of where we're where we're going. But let's talk microgrids. Um, and you know, I, I I think I heard you give a presentation on the state of microgrids, uh, and that must have been at least three years ago. What what would you say is the current state of microgrids? If you had to generalize, I like to use the term. They're sort of inching their way to full commercialization. You know, they're you could say that they're fully commercial, but I mean the technologies that comprise a microgrid have made incredible advances just since I started, let's say 11 years ago till now, what's really changed is the solar costs have come down so dramatically, the storage costs following behind, and then the controls, which is really the key technology uh, to make a microgrid work is, you know, what kind of controls are you using to orchestrate all these, you know, different resources. So for folks that don't know, a microgrid could be almost any size. It could have solar, diesel, EV chargers, hydro, biomass. You know, it's a very sort of wide concept. But the main function of the microgrid is, you know, it can disconnect from the larger grid when there's a grid outage or purposely disconnect uh, for a demand response resource or, or for whatever reason. Although most microgrids are still remote systems where there is no grid. And that's kind of where microgrids were born. What happened under Obama is that's when there was a lot of federal funding during that last recession, you know, which sort of talked about smart grid. And then there was more of a focus of microgrids that interconnected with the larger grid. And that is still the focus in North America. But if you say microgrid in Europe, most people think you're talking about like remote systems in Africa primarily because their grid has been so reliable. But with climate change, I think that's going to change. And, you know, I think microgrids uh, are, are, well, you could say they're taking off. I will say that I see new projects every week in my email queue. You know, I'm on all kinds of lists. And the volume of new microgrids is definitely picking up. But there are still challenges. And I'm sure we'll probably talk a little bit about that. But, you know, it's definitely on the upswing. And then really interesting perspectives on sort of the, the early, the genesis of microgrids being really in the developing world or in, in isolated areas, whether it's on islands or wherever. And then uh, very interesting about your Euro- European perspective I hadn't heard before. But then talk about it, within the United States, <clears throat> we must have a tapestry. I'm, I'm guessing you're going to tell me that the action is on the coasts. Um, <laughs> that's a safe Well, that's generally true, although... You know, we just had that major snowstorm in Texas, you know, and so there's, I would say there's interest increasing across the country, but you're right, the coasts have been the sweet spot, um, mainly because um, the retail rates are higher, although not so much, you know, Washington and Oregon there where the the costs are lower because of the hydro system, but California, and then I like to say almost Washington, D.C., North, almost every state has some sort of microgrid program now where when I first started, there were no state microgrid programs. And then starting in 2011, Connecticut passed the first microgrid law, I think after um, Superstorm Sandy or it might have been one of the earlier hurricanes. And then since that time, all those states and now you're seeing uh, more programs throughout. And Texas does have quite a few microgrids, although they tend to still be fossil 
uh, fuel-based microgrids, but there's definitely you know more interest in Texas and other states now too. Right, and then and then when you say there's a law, is that primarily to fund demonstration projects, or or has the law really gotten into the mechanics of um, interconnection and rate structures and all the nitty gritty that I want to talk about? Yeah, well, the the law was also interestingly enough geared towards giving a boost to the fuel cell industry in Connecticut. So, you know, each state kind of has a slightly different flavor on microgrids. So, um, although I think one of the most important regulatory things, and I'm not sure if this was in the original law, it might've been a follow-up, is that, you know, one of, well, we might as well talk, one of the challenges with microgrids are the existing laws that still exist from sort of the old monopoly system, even though most of the U.S. probably doesn't have much of a monopoly. You know, there's deregulated markets, there's different hybrid kind of markets, however you want to describe them. But in Connecticut, you can trans, one of the big things, like people ask me, why can't we build a microgrid in my neighborhood? And you have to say, well, because there's utility rules that say you cannot transfer power over a public right of way unless you are a utility or even to your neighbor, uh, theoretically, the over the fence rule, as it's often called. But in Connecticut, now, when there is an outage, you can transfer power over public right away. So that's just an example of how some of those old sort of rules that have been around, some of them literally for a century, I guess you could say, are being chipped away at. And I think that will only continue. And that is good news for, for microgrid advocates. Yeah. Do, do you get the sense, I've, I've talked to a number of engineers that are responsible for hooking up microgrids, really down in the weeds, the nitty gritty. Do you get the sense that there's, that there's this sort of this you know, utility culture, uh, not not universally, but, you know, generally that there's a utility culture of, of resisting microgrids, much like, you know, my career, the utility culture resisted demand side management. I mean, you know, we just wanted to sell power and this is our business and please stay out of the way. And so I'm hearing from a number of different ESCOs and all that interconnection is still really a challenge, not technically as much as sort of culturally. Yes, it is a challenge. And, you know, especially in California, that's one of the major challenges. You know, here we've had all these wildfires, the PSPS events, and people are sort of wondering, especially in the microgrid community, well, you know, microgrids make so much sense. Why aren't there more of them coming online? And one of the challenges is the interconnection. Another challenge is I think the regulators in California and other states are still kind of trying to get their head around these microgrids and and valid issues like equity, you know, will it just be the rich people who can buy the microgrids? So then, you know, folks who don't have the funds won't have the resiliency or, um, you know, just this idea of how much control do the utilities really need of these microgrids, you know, but the good, I mean, the other thing is, let's say five years ago, if you went to a microgrid conference, there were basically no utilities there. Now, almost every microgrid conference has a panel uh, with utility folks, and they are deploying microgrids themselves. You know, they're dipping their toes in the water. Now, the challenge is a lot of investor-owned utilities have had um, proposals to fund microgrids rejected by regulators because the challenge for them is, you know, do the benefits flow to all ratepayers or just a subset? You know, so I think it's this kind of universal energy access, which is a great idea, but microgrids in some ways bump up against that. But there are utilities who've been successful. Duke Energy's one, 
that has, you know, I'd say the most successful projects have often been, um, you know, alternatives to other infrastructure, like traditional infrastructure, building a transmission line. Like the first major utility microgrid was in San Diego, Borrego Springs, even though it was an R&D project. But the reason they justified it is that it costs more to reinforce that transmission line to a remote community. It was still connected to the grid, but it was up in the high desert than to just build a microgrid. And so Duke Energy has been successful and has some other creative projects like a contingency microgrid that, you know, helps the wholesale market, but when there's a grid outage, provides resiliency to a National Guard site in Indiana. That's just one example. So you're starting to see kind of more creative combinations where the microgrid also benefits the larger grid. And that's why utilities are less opposed to them than, let's say, 10 years ago. Yeah, well put. And I would imagine that the utilities are, are having ownership positions or formal partnership positions so that it's not just seen as uh, you know, somebody exiting our system or threatening to leave our system and lost revenues and all the, you know, all the classic arguments against the distributed resources. As I understand it, there is a CPUC proceeding going on now about microgrids, and maybe this yes. is an ongoing proceeding. And I think that the yes. earlier phases was just sort of get generators out there to deal with the PSPS events and that everybody sort of raised their hands and said, oh my God, more diesel generators, more fossil fuels, just, just what we need, uh, me being very sarcastic. Um, well, no, that is true. And I think, um, you know, that's what PG&E, although they were talking about using biodiesel, you know, and I do think that points to a new trend. I did a white paper earlier this year with a company called Mainspring, which has a new kind of generator called a linear generator. And, you know, it's, I, I won't get into the engineering, but the main takeaway is that it's flexible fuel. So I think the wave of the future is that generators, especially now, now within the last year, it's just amazing. The investment community is really making a big deal of climate change. I shouldn't sound surprised, but you know, if you've been around for a while, you've been hearing people talk about this and then suddenly you're going, wow, you know, they're actually taking this seriously and putting pressure like even data centers, which traditionally kind of have a microgrid, but they're really lots of UPS systems with lots of diesel, and then they'll just buy offsets, you know, and say, hey, we're carbon neutral. Well, now the investment community is saying, that's not good enough. You know, we want you to actually change on-site power supply. And so a lot of them are more going to fuel cells because they're a little more comfortable with that. A lot of them don't have enough room for the amount of solar they would actually require to power up, you know, a huge diesel center. So we're kind of in that that middle but in california you're right you know a lot of the initial reaction by the utilities was just to use uh diesel generators some folks say you should use at least natural gas etc cetera, etc cetera. but i do think um the the economics of solar and batteries you know keeps getting better and better so some of those arguments about you know is it resiliency or sustainability at some point they're they're can't make that argument anymore. And, you know, you're going to need longer duration storage is the other thing. And that's why you're seeing a lot more interest in hydrogen and other kinds of batteries. You know, I was going to want your read on this as it relates to this proceeding, but, you know, my company has been involved in developing microgrids and uh, hardening buildings. And we've been getting pretty good at, at putting systems in at parity, right? So we've been able to put up enough solar to, to generate savings through rate changes, as well as uh, savings. Uh, to put in storage and controls and 
And, it, and it's kind of a trick. I mean, you're, you're, you're kind of go, you've got to get the, the investors behind you. You've got to pick up the tax credits. You've got to uh, do a, you know, use enough storage that you get the uh, ITC on the storage. And then you're, you know, then you're after the accelerated depreciation benefits. And then you're you know, both at the federal and state level. And then you're going after the SGIP funds. Uh, and then you're relying on net energy metering, which, as you and I know, is in flux right now or about to change, I'm sure. So it's this whole composite of kind of incentives and everything that you try to cobble together a deal. And I'm hoping, and I'm, maybe you can <laughs> you can reflect on this, I'm hoping that uh, when Commissioner Sharoma gets through with this microgrid proceeding, that we'll have some sort of a new way of treating microgrids so that, they're, that the, all the benefits to the grid and to society and resilience are clearly matched with the, with the actual cost of service and that we end up somewhere uh, somewhere new and in a much more um, beneficial, mutually beneficial position. Well, you know, the irony is, is that the, I mentioned a microgrid can do lots of things. It can help you integrate diverse resources and as well as fossil, you know, let's not forget, you know, often there are, you know, most microgrids are not greenfield projects. There's usually something there. It's often a diesel backup generator, it could be CHP. Increasingly, it could be solar, you know, someone installed solar, but you know, that they didn't realize that the solar goes down when the grid goes down. I had all kinds of people, you know, asking me about that during the first PS, like, wait a minute, I thought I had my own power, you know, no, well, that's the, the rules, you know, et cetera. But I do think, you know, that, that things are starting to change and to, you know, to simplify, as you said. So I think, uh, as I was saying, you know, the irony is, is that the microgrid resiliency, there is no value for resiliency by the marketplace. You know, there's not like, oh, resiliency is worth three cents a kilowatt hour. Well, if you factor that in your micro, whoa, it's cost effective. You know, so that's a challenge, although creating that value, I could imagine. And I remember I was covering proceedings at the Energy Commission like 20 years ago about environmental externalities and sat through years of, you know, academics arguing, you know, well, what's the value of this pollutant versus that pollutant? We use this methodology. So that's what we don't need, but you know, it's not zero. So I know that people have talked about, and I know in certain jurisdictions, you know, some things are starting to happen. So that's part of the challenge, but you're right. I think it is way too complex. You just described some of the complexity. I guess the only good news is, is that, you know, as the costs keep coming down, um, you know, hopefully, you know, the economic value proposition gets easier. And, one reason we are saying the CNI market, commercial and industrial, is now the fastest growing market, is because they have an internal value for resiliency. They know how much it cost them when the grid was down for three days. You know, let's say it cost them 100 grand or whatever. If that happens three times in one year, they're going, wow, you know, I lost X amount of money. I guess it's worth my while if this continues into the future. And hopefully, you know, the grid becomes more hardened over time. But Obviously, with climate change, um, we're not going to be able to totally stop forest fires or extreme weather. You know, it's going to be around for a while. So, I guess you know the good news is um, that well, the CNI market, but that doesn't matter for up oh, there's my dog again. Vulnerable communities, which is are the ones that really need the most support. You know, I would argue that the grants that government gives should be targeted to those kind of community projects. Yeah, I think you're making a lot of really good points about the uh, the private sector, which is grasping the the value or the lost value of of being of being down from the grid, 
and can make that calculation. I, I was wondering whether utilities might have resiliency tariffs, where if somebody voluntarily wanted to have X amount of storage in the tank or whatever it was, a generator or something that the utility might lease them or fuel cell or whatever, that that would be a, a sort of a new revenue source for utilities. Well, I know that um, there was the Miramar microgrid. I think you're familiar with it. It's down south. And I know that um, San Diego Gas and Electric called upon it to island a few times last year during wildfires because just taking that amount of load off, and I know there's a similar story about UC San Diego uh, longer ago where at one point supposedly it held up the whole grid just by shifting four megawatts or something of, of load. And that was enough you know, to sustain and hold up the grid. But I know what Miramar was saying is that they were not compensated for that service. And I believe that that situation with Miramar has led to talks of trying to develop some sort of compensation. But you're right, you know, there should be compensation for that. And if there is that compensation, you know, that's going to provide yet another incentive for microgrids and another thing that will make them look more cost effective. Of course, the other thing is more about the provision of grid services from microgrids. And that's one area where Texas has done the best and one company Enchanted Rock. Now, granted, their microgrids primarily are natural gas, very simple, low cost microgrids, but they help balance wholesale wind power. And the whole value proposition is based on the revenue generated from the grid services. So the customer, they basically pay nothing uh, in the end for resiliency at their grocery stores and huge gas stations. And then they balance you know, wholesale wind, as you know, probably Texas got the most wind power of any state. But, you know, they've had trouble expanding that model to some other states, but we'll see, you know, maybe that'll work in other places as well. Interesting. What's what's the future going to look like? <laughs> what if we go out 10 or 15 or 20 years and uh, cost of solar keep coming down, storage keeps coming down, controls get better and better. There's more integration, uh, more over the fence opportunities, uh, who knows what. I mean, is everybody going to be in a microgrid? I mean, is our, my own house going to be a microgrid in my community? I mean, are, do, do we do it? And, and Peter, do we end up with, with, with redundancy in systems that is really um, not logical? Sort of like the old days when they, when all the utilities, multiple utilities ran their wires down the roads? Or, right. Well, you know, that's where we started, you know, with Thomas Edison was with microgrids. In fact, DC microgrids, direct current microgrids, and then but it was so competitive. You're right. There were wires everywhere and it looked like chaos. And then that's when, you know, the whole shift to monopolies and AC power and Tesla versus, you know, Edison and, and all those old sort of that old history. So, you know, I don't think we want to go back exactly to that, but I do think I'd say microgrids are inevitable or other forms. I mentioned virtual power plants. Now that's you know, also going to be, I said, it's kind of the glue that holds the grid together. So when I look at it like a single home, I call that a nanogrid. Now there's no definition of a nanogrid, but I, I've been calling them nanogrids, you know, like individual home systems, but they can be aggregated into microgrids or virtual power plants or both. And, you know, so I do think that's what's going to be required because our research shows that beginning this year, more DER is coming online globally than centralized generation and the gap grows. So by 10 years, there'll be something like three times as much new DER capacity. And that includes things like demand response, EV chargers as well, which are potential grid assets. So it's a very broad category, but there's more of that capacity 
coming online than centralized generation. I mean, in this country, you've seen the nuclear power plants being closed, the coal plants being closed. You're not seeing new coal plants really develop. I mean, in other parts of the world, there are, but those are global numbers. So I think we're going to need things like microgrids. And as extreme weather continues, we're going to have more power outages. And we are so addicted to electricity, even remote work. Now, I mean, you know, that was my situation. I'm working remotely. The grid goes down. I used to just drive over the hill to a coffee shop. But with COVID, I couldn't do that either. So, you know, I think COVID, climate change, all these emergencies are just making people think about a more nimble, flexible system. Try to take care of yourself as much as possible. Yet we do want to be part of a neighborhood, you know, so the microgrid. So I think it's really the community microgrid that is the hardest to develop now with regulations, but that's where a lot of the grassroots, that's what they want are those community microgrids. So that's going to be the most interesting thing. Like, how does that evolve? Will that be where the utilities focus on microgrids and let the CNI, let the private sector do CNI, you know, or something like that? Or will it, I don't think it'll be necessarily that neat, but that could be just sort of a natural evolution where the private sector I would also say um, my other trend, two trends we haven't talked about is modular microgrids, which is I think what California needs, which are smaller systems, but they're kind of pre-configured. They can go in quicker. They should have a easier interconnection than let's say a 30 megawatt, you know, more complex microgrid with thermal energy and all this other stuff. So we need to sort of differentiate interconnection and sort of have like a fast track you know, these guys have UL certified, you know, you know, all, you know, like if it's all certified technologies, it's pre-configured in a box. It's, you know, a 50 kilowatt system for like Home Depots or whatever, or school districts. I know you've done some school districts, you know, so that's one. And then the other thing is the energies of service, which I know you and I talked about, which is a lot of hype, you know, still seeing if that comes out. But that's the other trend, just like solar leasing help solar take off where there was no upfront capital cost. The customer, obviously a microgrid is more complicated than just a solar system on the roof. So if the company is willing to bet that it's technology and it will perform, you know, and you're seeing companies now doing that and not just big companies, smaller companies too. That to me also says that the market is becoming more commercial when you have people willing to risk them, you know, their own business saying we will guarantee this sort of performance. So modular and energy as a service, I think those are really two big trends that aren't just the US. I think, you know, that's what's happening globally where there is no grid, you know, energy pay as you go programs. That's what's sort of made that work, um, you know, in, in India or Africa, et cetera. Well, how fantastic. You're, you are incredibly uh, articulate. I appreciate, I appreciate that. I, I, had, I had all these questions for you. And, and I just answered them. and you and you answered them all. We're right on. We're, our timing is perfect. But you you were just you were always one step ahead of me, which maybe is a, a, well, it is a one. Well, actually, step. your assistant gave me all your questions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, but let's let's wrap up by just talking about how you maintain balance, because I've been asking this question to all the people that I'm interviewing. And oh God, you, you well, I, you know, okay. I'm just gonna I'm gonna make you feel good, and then you can reel me back in, but. You're an author, you're a radio show host. Uh, every other week you're doing a show, it sounds really cool. Energy, environment, and rock and roll. You're a musician, 
uh, you're a chef's helper, and it sounds like a local restaurant, which I would love to be a chef's helper. Uh, and somehow you're doing all of this research and traveling around the world and giving lectures. Um, how do you do all that? Uh, is it living in Stinson Beach that just gives you that fog and it just brings you down to earth? <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't say I was doing as well with the work-life balance a few years ago. And, you know, it, it, I think I, I kind of hit some point where I realized I was too stressed out, you know, and I was. So actually, lately, I have been actually doing more yoga in general, but that's also about getting older and just, you know, the you have sore arms, and, you know, just a sort of like, wow, you know, I should. So, I mean, you know, yes, being out in nature, taking, you heard the dog, you know, almost, almost every day I go for a, a nice beach walk. And it's, it's funny how just physical exercise, you get some of your best ideas or people will come to mind and then you'll get an email from them. Yeah, it's one of those cosmic things. I mean, as it happened to you, but you go, oh my God, I was just thinking about this person. And then, you know, they, I mean, sometimes it's literally within a few minutes, other times, oh, within the week, you know, or, you know, whatever. So I think um, I don't work late nights anymore. I'm more of an early riser. So I used to do more late night working, but I tend not to anymore. For me, it's just easier, you know, getting up early in the morning and getting as much done before noon as possible. And, you know, um, part of it for me is um, the public speaking. I used to be the shyest kid in the class, you know, in the back row, never said a word. So I'm not sure what happened at some point. Um, you know, radio is nice because, you know, they don't see you. And I've been doing a lot of spots on microgrids on my radio show, although Last night I sat in for a friend show. I did a Sunday night show and I could play two hours of uninterrupted music. And so that was really a hoot for me because at night shows, you can just play kind of different music than first thing in the morning. And so I could play longer, jazzier stuff, you know, whatever. So I think you have to always keep a balance. And so I don't have a band anymore. I used to have a, a band and we even played energy events. And then, you know, I just, it got, you know, just like a relationship, it was, the amount of work to keep the band going at some point just was, and it was because actually when I got hired by Pike and having a guide house, a full-time job, when I was independent, I was a little more flexible. So I still play some music. I play open mics. I've organized, I did a, an event about the history of music in Stinson beach with the local historical society. I'm, I'm also on three boards now in town, the historical society, village association and now just the community center, but they don't take up that much time. So I think it's just trying to, you know, figure out what's right. And when you can, when you say I have to stop, you know, I don't drink lattes at six o'clock at night anymore, like I used to, and you know, then work till 11. I just don't do that anymore. That's where I draw the line, essentially. But, you know, a chef's helper, that's, you know, it's not as glorious as it sounds, but she's a private chef. But, you know, I'm more schlepping. But I've learned really be good at the barbecue, and I make a killer pizza. Those are my my specialties. So, uh, you know, that's those are my contributions on the cuisine side. What a, what a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it. And uh, Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Carry on, you. Peter. Carry on. You too, Ted. That's it. Thanks for tuning in to this edition of The Net Positive. We'll see you next time.